Hello. Welcome to Out in the Bay, queer radio and podcast. I'm Eric Jansen. What does one do when falsely accused? What would you do if you were a school teacher, a gay teacher, falsely accused of inappropriately touching one of your students, and you see your career start to crumble through no fault of your own? The novel Doubting Thomas gets into this question and much more. Fairness, guilt and innocence, discrimination, especially based on race and sexual orientation, internalized homophobia, power and wealth, the limits of liberalism, to name a few. It's the work of Matthew Clark Davison, who teaches creative writing at San Francisco State University and founded The Lab, writing classes with MCD in 2007. He spoke with me from his home in Oakland. You may hear the Amtrak train roll by outside. Matthew, welcome to Out in the Bay. Hey, Eric. What a joy to be here. Thank you for having me. Sure. Let's hear some. You've chosen some passages to read for us. The first is Thomas, the title character, a fourth-grade teacher at a private school, ruminating over an incident the night before at a fundraiser. It was in the home of one of Thomas's pupils' parents, Lisa and Conrad J. Everyone who worked endured, tolerated. But hadn't Conrad taken it too far? The kiss last night shook him. Not in itself. Under regular circumstances, who would care? The old joke, what's the difference between a gay guy and a straight guy? A six-pack and a back rub. Crucial difference, no back rub. Not one of Thomas's actions could have been classified as flirtation. It bothered Thomas for what it represented. Can't have your cake and eat it too. In the closet, no less. The symbolism required zero imagination. The metaphor was too spot on. The Jays weren't in an open marriage. How did he know? The fact that he didn't know. Had it been true, he would have heard by Toby's second week of kindergarten. Or, if a recent development, Thomas would have known 20 minutes after. That's just how it worked at Country Day. And Thomas, more than any of the other teachers, had one ear to Mercy's mouth and the other to the mom's. Had Thomas been assaulted, harmed in any way, abused? No. He hadn't been a victim in that sense. But who, in the F, did that a-hole think that he was putting Thomas in that kind of position? with clearly everything in his favor. Any idiot could tell you who held the power and how, from the outside, the situation would be perceived. That's Matthew Clark Davison reading from his book, Doubting Thomas. So who's Conrad? Tell us about Conrad there in that scene. Thomas has a fourth grade class is very small. It's like, it's five to one parent. I mean, um, student-teacher ratio. Wow. Amazing. Yeah, student-teacher. It's amazing. And, um, and Conrad is Toby's dad. Toby um, is one of Thomas's students and the one that comes back from the bathroom. He gets flustered and his pants fall down and he's so flustered that he just kind of freezes and doesn't pull them up. And after a you know, very long pregnant pause, Thomas kind of goes to him and helps him pull up his pants. And that's the incident that, was, um, that had happened a couple days before this fundraiser when Conrad and his wife hosted a big fundraiser for the scholarship students for the fancy public school. And Conrad kind of invited Thomas to see the architecture of his bedroom because Thomas went upstairs at the party in order to use the bathroom and um, laid a kiss on him. And so he's, he's recalling that from the night before. And this is just before the actual accusation comes through, before Thomas finds out that he has to, he's been forced to be put on leave and can't come to the classroom anymore. Okay, and this incident you described where he was pulling up Toby's pants, little fourth grader Toby's pants, um, 
witnesses backed him up, and he was cleared in the classroom. And that's not giving anything away. It was cleared in the investigation, I should say, um, because there are witnesses there. So even after law enforcement investigation clears Thomas, the parents still don't want him at the school anymore. So why doesn't Thomas defend himself? Why doesn't he tell the investigators, even his boss and his longtime friend Mercy, his uh, best friend in Portland until the accusation, that the kid's father made a pass at Thomas, kissed him at the school fundraiser? You know, I thought about it, and throughout the years of, of drafting Doubting Thomas, readers just, you know, had a really hard time buying that a career could be ruined by something so innocuous in a place like San Francisco or Portland, known for its progressive politics, where out gay educators exist. And so I had to kind of up the stakes on that. But I think that Thomas believes that by being a good boy and by respecting these people and by playing by their rules things are going to work out. So I just don't think it's in his character to try to destroy somebody else's life because the whole time he goes into this weird fugue state where he thinks any minute they're going to be, they're going to say, whoops, we were wrong. Come back in the classroom. You've given us 12 years of your life. You're a, an incredible educator. You've, you're, you, we value you. Come on back. And all along, he'd had these stellar relationships with the students and the parents and everybody loved him. Right. So... There's this limits of liberalism that apparently, so the other parents are still at this hearing that's in the book, are still going like, yeah, but just because you didn't find any evidence against him doesn't mean that he's innocent. It seems that one of my favorite novels of all time is Sula and by Toni Morrison. And um, in, in it, I learned so much from reading and rereading that book over the years. And, you know, the human beings seem to need a pariah. They seem to need a scapegoat. They seem to need an, a boogeyman, somebody to put all of their fears and worries on. And it, it's sort of, especially if there is in the imaginations of people, a kind of utopia. And I look at Country Day as this progressive idea of a utopia. Kids get to take robotics courses in 2013. They get to choose between Mandarin and Cantonese if they want to learn a Chinese language, they, there's just so they have everything because their parents can pay for it, you know, and, and th so they sort of created a utopia. And I think that the idea of to maintain a utopia, there has to be a sacrifice of sorts happens. And I also really put myself square in the shoes. It's like, even though I'm an out gay person, even though I've been out my entire life, I've, I, I never came, my mother, you know, um, my, I should say my, the, a mother figure that adopted me told me that I came out of the, the womb wearing pearls and high heels. So, um, <laughs> and my, my biological mother agrees that, you know, I was just so, I was all of the things that people associate in this culture as gay when I was growing up. And so I never had the experience of being able to choose whether or not I, I, I came out. I think that for Thomas, I, but I did still put myself in the situation of like, if my kid or one of my nieces, I don't have children, but if one of my nieces was at a school where there was an accusation that somebody could be sexually molesting a kid, could I, Matthew Clark Davison, say for certain that I would let that kid go back in the room with that adult? I wanted to make that really, really hard for the reader mm -hmm. to contend with. Not only, right. you know, folks that are, liberal-minded but have limits very easily like you scratch into the surface and you find it might be something else but people that are you know like me and like thomas educators ourselves 
I don't know. I wanted that to, I wanted it to be really, really tough. Right, right. I mean, actually, I think that's one of the points that it brings up for me is that even here in the liberal Bay Area, there are limits. I mean, how much do we even, you know, you and I, white, cisgender, gay men, hold ourselves back, check ourselves, check our behavior a little bit? And, you know, how much of that is limited by the outside world and how much is our own internal stuff? And does it matter which, what do those two just conflate so much that it doesn't really matter? You know, I think that we have come very, very, very far um, as a culture and the fact that, you know, I have a husband and, you know, we, we live our day-to-day lives feeling fairly safe, I think. Um, we're also an interracial couple. We have things in common with Thomas and Manny in the book. I don't have answers to any of these things. I wanted to explore the complexities of the questions. So what are the, some of the things you are trying to get to in the book with, with you know, the differences between, for example, discrimination uh, and the similarities between you know, race-based and sexual orientation-based? That comes up, definitely. Yeah, I think it does come up. I, I wanted to explore that because I don't, I don't, I, Matthew, don't have opinions that I think are in any way conclusive or interesting. Like, like I wasn't trying to write a political novel. I absolutely see how it is political, but I was trying to explore relationships where these kinds of differences exist within a community that already loves one another and how complex it already can be within those communities when you have the love. So I too want to believe that if we sit down and talk to one another, we could reason things out. But it seems like unless you have very personal ties with one another, it might just be too hard. I'm not sure. So what I did was put a bunch of people in a situation. Also, my family, my own family, Matthew, Matthew's family versus Thomas's family, deals with all of these issues. This is coming, you know, this is, this is borrowed from autobiography where religion, class, race, socioeconomics, they play a part in how we relate to one another within the groups of people that I already love, and it creates tension. Mm-hmm. And I like tension for novels. Sure. <laughs> for novels, not necessarily in your own life. <laughs> <laughs> so you found a, a section that I asked you to find, actually, which is when um, Thomas and his younger brother, Jake, used to... You know, Thomas used to comfort his younger brother, Jake. I'm not sure the age difference, but it seems like it's several years, not just a Five. year or two. Yeah. Five years. Okay, mm-hmm. thank you. And, um, you know, uh, Thomas would let Jake slip in his bed when Jake was scared, and they would cuddle until... Um, you know, the older brother, James, said, you know, what are you doing? And shamed them for it. Can you read that one of those passages? Yeah, I'll read the one where he's remembering it. That's portrayed in the book in an earlier part. And then I'll read the one that comes later. Jake, the younger brother. I'll, I'll set it up a tiny bit, Eric. The Jake, the younger brother, also has a history of drug addiction. But he was he and his wife had both been sober for many, many, many years. In fact, their 12-year-old kid has never seen them touch a drug or, or a drink. But Thomas is, is remembering um, reuniting with Jake because Thomas left when Jake was still a kid to go to college and didn't stay in good touch with him for his own reasons. So the, Thomas in this scene is remembering um, reuniting with Jake, his younger brother, after they had reunited for the first time. And as far as James, the older brother, who's a great guy, he's a wonderful person, but you know, their, their mom was working at the 11 to 7 shift at the hospital. She was a nurse after their dad left and sometimes Jake and Thomas were like cold. And because also James um, went to school in the next town over and would sometimes stay at his girlfriend's house. And so they were alone in this house 
and they were cold and scared. They were kids. And so they would snuggle up tight with each, each other. And one time James found them and Thomas didn't know that there was something bad or wrong, but found out through James's reaction. So the world had taught their older brother James to express outrage when he found Jake and Thomas snuggled together to keep warm as children. Thomas hated the world for it, but hated himself more for giving in to the outrageous demand. On subsequent nights as children, when Jake, afraid in a huge house with no parents, came to Thomas, Thomas refused him, scolded him, insisted he go back to his own bed. Then, when Thomas came out, the shame of the memory of James chastising them multiplied. Thomas had just turned 24 the year they reunited, and Thomas's attraction to Jake, then 18, bordered too close to sexual. He had never repressed nor indulged in incestuous fantasy, the kind gay porn outfits made fortunes from, with their Brazilian triplets and Eastern European twins. But Thomas couldn't help but acknowledge his brother's dark features, strong bone structure, his staggering level, level of physical fitness, with striations of muscle visible through the fabric of his tight Henley. Jake and Thomas had spent their days at the condo complex's pool. Thomas hadn't seen his brother without a shirt since they were children. Jake's body hair and the muscles of his tattooed chest, forearms, calves, and abdominals appeared at once soft and hard. He laughed often and easily, gentler than a guffaw, but hearty and contagious. Little did Thomas know that Jake had already smoked heroin, shooting it would come later, in the pool house changing room. But only after he politely excused himself. Then and now, Jake had an all-consuming desire to please and be liked by all. Maddie, James, the waitress, tollbooth attendant, Reginald, the airport traffic cop, the telephone customer service representative, their father, his wife, his son's teachers, his co-workers, and perhaps more than anyone else. Thomas. That's Matthew Clark Davison, reading from his book, Doubting Thomas. You're listening to Out in the Bay. I'm Eric Jansen. I, I kind of feel like there's a there's a similarity between Thomas's like looking back at this thing and he's kind of got this repressed, uh, you know, like, um, a, I guess a little bit of lust for his younger brother. But and that's also making him feel like, oh, my God, I can't you know, maybe I shouldn't have been a teacher. He's having all these self-doubts for all kinds of reasons. Mm-hmm. And um, it's called Doubting Thomas for a reason, isn't it? Yeah, Doubting Thomas, and people <laughs> doubt Thomas, and uh, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's either, it's a verb and it's an adjective, both at the same time. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I don't think that Thomas would ever have blood rushed to any nether region of his body in thinking about his brother or his brother's physicality. But I wanted to, um, my wonderful um, editor, Michael Nava at Amble Press, Michael Nava is an incredible writer himself. He and I got into a discussion one day and we were like, you know, we we don't want to just portray Thomas as completely neutered and also as completely innocent. We want even the queerest reader that picks up this book to be uncomfortable at times. And we, we want him to be sexual. And Thomas, you know, from the very first draft was sexual, as you know. There's a... Um, um, Alia Voltz, the writer, I think was the first person that pointed out to me that um, there's a sex scene that starts on page 69 of the novel. <laughs> but the 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 idea of seeing his brother as a sexual person and this way in which Thomas and I think other queer people have historically, sometimes, not everyone, you know, 
avoided the intimacy of their own family, not because they were afraid of their own impulses, but because they were aware of the ways in which the culture sexualizes queer people, whether they have sex or not. And so that even being caught looking Mm -hmm. at the differences at a person's body, which is a natural thing to do. I haven't seen you in 10 years. You have more or less hair. You've gained 10 or five pounds. You're, You're sitting by a swimming pool. Who anywhere can say that they wouldn't notice differences? And those differences happen to line up. The associations in Thomas's mind were that that Jake was close to an ideal that often was portrayed for gay men. And he and I and I wanted to push on that. I really wanted to push on that in order to see, in order to kind of illuminate for myself the ways in which I might be limiting my own expression um, based on these societal expectations. And by doing so, what am I gaining? Nothing. I'm not getting any more or less acceptance by by not saying to my brother, if this were the case, I made that scene up. But if it were, if it were from real life, I'd be like, oh my God. Um, like J- James says to Thomas when he goes to New York for Thanksgiving, you know, you're so, you're so buffed. And I know a lot of gay people who wouldn't feel comfortable saying that to their heterosexual brother. Am I making sense here, Eric? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You are making sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that does make sense. It's uh, maybe that's part of what I was asking before. It's like we have a certain way of checking ourselves to some extent, um, even though we may feel, you know, totally comfortable in so many other ways. It's no small wonder why people find themselves in enclaves and in, you know, community chosen families. Even if they have good and loving families, sometimes it's just really tough. Speaking of enclaves, how did you, why did you move to San Francisco? What brought you here to the Bay Area, I should say? You know, I, the, the dramatic answer that I have is that I really wanted to keep the blood on the inside of my body. And as a young person, I was so hounded. And once my family moved to Massachusetts that I had to drop out of high school. I dropped out of high school and left uh, home before I turned 16. And then... Uh, Gradually made it to San Francisco by the time I was 19. I first went back to San Jose where I grew up until I was 10. I had stayed in touch with a family, with a friend in um, San Jose all throughout the seven years that I lived in Massachusetts. And so I thought, oh, well, I have a friend there. And then also my mom worked as a nurse when I was young um, in San Jose. And there was someone that worked at the hospital where she had worked who was renting out a room that, that, so I decided, you know what, I dropped out of high school, I got a GED, and I decided, you know what, I'm going to go to junior college and take some classes and then study acting one day. And um, then, of course, I got to San Jose. I went, I met my first gay people at the restaurant job where I worked. We went into the city and went dancing once with my fake ID that said I was 24 when I was, in fact, 17. And I just saved all of my money so I could move to San Francisco. It was just like there was no way I was going to stay. This was in 89. And there was just so much going on, as you probably well know. Um, And I wanted to be at the center of it. Yeah, okay. And what propelled you? Like you mentioned earlier um, that uh, this incident with Thomas in the classroom where he uh, helped pull up this uh, kid's pants. was based on a real event where some a, a friend of yours, a school teacher, had touched some kid's shoulder and was accused of being improper. Is there is there is there a real? 
did that real incident spark this book? What sparked this writing this book? The thing that sparked, there's two different things that, that coalesced that made Doubting Thomas. One was that I had finished, I had always known prior to reading Justin Torres's um, novel, We the Animals, that I wanted to write about three brothers, one queer. My, my MFA thesis, when I, I didn't know what an MFA program was, and then I ended up in one. <laughs> Literally the semester before, I didn't know what MFA stood for. And uh, one of my teachers was like, you know, and I, I didn't end up studying acting at San Francisco State. I ended up switching to creative writing. And one of my teachers was like, you should apply for the MFA. And I was like, what's that? And he explained it to me and I got my, my applications together. And um, I attempted to write about my runaway experience and I was portraying both of my brothers and I didn't have the skills to do it at the time. And so, I, and I also felt like it was more dramatic to have him be an only child because the before we knew about topics like bug chasing or or um, seroconversion, um, I wanted to write a novel about a guy that acquired HIV to get something on purpose. He did it on purpose, calculated in order to to kind of um, have something permanent in his life. And I felt like uh, my teacher was, was like, you can't differentiate between these brothers. And I just, at that time I was very young and I, and I put on the back burner writing about my own feelings about being one of three brothers and reading Justin Torres's novel brought that back up. And so I started writing these scenes, but as you know, in the book, you find out very early that Jake, the younger brother has cancer. And my real life younger brother, after I started writing about a fake younger brother that got cancer, was diagnosed with a terminal cancer and it was too close. So I stepped away from it. And my younger brother luckily survived. And um, then I went back to that after this witnessing this thing that also reminded me of something else with that was more similar to what happens in the book that happened in Massachusetts where a babysitter pulled up a kid's pants and then was accused of, you know, that being inappropriate because the, the person was perceived as gay in the community. And I remember hearing about that. It revolved around our church with somebody from the congregation. And I just was mortified knowing that that very easily could have been me because I babysat too. So I put those two things together and I couldn't really get into the brothers and I couldn't really get into the accusation until I put them together. And then each one of them sort of buffed and shined each other and became Doubting Thomas. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. That's uh, that's quite a story. <laughs> <laughs> but I can only now tell in retrospect. I had, At the time, I was just writing about what infuriated me or interested me or my process is that I, I kind of gather wool and then decide whether or not it's going to be a sweater or a scarf later. Right, right. You mentioned your, your editor, Michael Nava, a, a few minutes ago. In the acknowledgments in the book, um, he, he says something like uh, he wanted Thomas to be angrier and queerer. And, and you wrote in the book, like, I've been waiting to hear that comment for such a long time. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, I feel like I've been very lucky. And I think that up until having this novel, I had very good luck with smaller publications too. But I got a lot of rejections based on what readers want to and don't want to read according to the subjective opinions of editors and agents. The the gatekeepers in the industry. And so my whole career, and including in predominantly heterosexual workshop spaces, Oh, a reader doesn't want to read that scene. But, you know, nobody wants to know about analingus. <laughs> like, you know, these, I had, you know, sex is part of life. And I, I wanted to portray 
same gender sex in my writing. And I was oftentimes told to tone it down. And like a lot of historically marginalized people, maybe gay, cisgender, white men, least of all, um, are often told to tone things down. You're being too much, you're being too loud, you're being too this, you're being too that. And, you know, hearing Michael say, I want him to be queerer and angrier, that was the comment that I'd been waiting to hear in workshop my whole life. And he certainly does get uh, angrier towards the end of the book. (laughs) Maybe queerer too. Thank goodness for the reader, right? I always think that by doing something, we can solve problems. And this whole book might even be my subconscious telling me like, I'm not just so sure that if you tell the story right, if you reword it, if you hand over your computer, if you do all the things they ask, that still may not be enough. Mm-hmm. Do you want to read one more passage? If you wouldn't mind just reading that, that section that leads up to um, Thomas's first sexual encounter with a man when he's in college at UC Berkeley. Oh, yes. That's in Chapter 7. He found himself in the electronic store a third time, the very next afternoon, that time to thank Tony and to tell him how great the headphones sounded. Tony smiled, follow me, and led Thomas into a room with thick foam rubber-lined walls and ceiling. A small window allowed Tony to keep an eye on the counter and register. You think the earphones sound good, he said, grabbing a remote control. Tony sat down first and then patted the space next to them on a small couch, a love seat, really. Their legs touched, and as Tony told Thomas about something called surround sound, that small charge, that tiny bit of heat that migrated through the fabric of Tony's khakis and Thomas's jeans, while Roxy music blared from all sides, opened a yearning he had never experienced before. A customer disrupted the moment, cruelly, mercifully, cruelly because of the wait. Boys like Thomas had waited years for that moment to arrive, mercifully because the warmth of Tony's palm on Tony's thigh had almost made him come. Thomas flushed, composed himself, used his backpack to cover his erection while he exited. He resisted the urge to leave the store altogether and steeled himself to stay. By the batteries, he could have gotten cheaper at the drugstore. The heat builds, and a few, just a, two pages later, when he visits the store again, we get, we get more. Uh, so you can look forward to that, dear readers. That's Matthew Clark Davison reading from his book, Doubting Thomas. He's also a San Francisco State University creative writing professor and founder and teacher of the lab, Writing Classes with MCD. Matthew, thank you so much for, for being here and reading from your book and talking about it. Where can folks find it? They can find it everywhere. It's available on Bookshop. It's available in the bookstores. In Bay Area folks um, will be able to find it at Fabulosa Books and Castro at um, Green Apple, at Booksmith, all of, all of whom have done wonderful events with me. And uh, Eric, I would like to thank you so much for hosting this program and for amplifying the voices of so many queer folks out there trying to make the world a little bit more, what would you say? Interesting. Compelling. Enjoyable. Fun. <laughs> <laughs> all of those things. Thank you. Thank you so much.
You've been listening to Out in the Bay, Queer Radio and Podcast. My guest was Matthew Clark Davison, author of Doubting Thomas. You can find it at the usual spots, including San Francisco independent booksellers Green Apple and Fabulosa. We'll have a link to it and info about Matthew in the post for this edition of Out in the Bay on our website, outinthebay.org. That's outinthebay.org, where you can hear past shows, get in touch, and subscribe to our podcast and our email newsletter. While you're there, please consider chipping in. Your donation will help us keep spreading queer voices and stories around the Bay, the nation, and the globe. Out in the Bay is nonprofit and independent. That means we get no financial support from the radio stations that air Out in the Bay weekly, nor from NPR, nor from podcast platforms. We rely on listeners. Just hit the donate button at outinthebay.org. Thank you. And here's a way to help that won't cost you a dime. Please let us know how we're doing and also where you are and how you're listening. Just shoot an email to outinthebay at yahoo.com. That's outinthebay at yahoo.com. We're grateful, as always, to Richard Merck and Brad Payton of Silicon Valley for their ongoing generous support. And to Susan and Hayward and Keith of Six Pack Foods in Reno, Nevada for their recurring monthly gifts. Join them and us, if you can, please, at outinthebay.org. We'll thank you on the air only if you say it's okay. This week's show was edited by me and Amber Miles. Audio engineer Timoteo Valadez sweetened the sound quality of our in-home studio recordings. Thank you, Amber and Timoteo. Our theme music was written and performed by Holly Mead. I'm Eric Jansen. I'm so glad you could join us. Come back next week, won't you? Out in the Bay at outinthebay.org.